Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about improving the welfare related to training and managing our horses. Sometimes we as horse people get stuck in our traditions and habits. We're also influenced by mythology and marketing. But is there a better way to handle and take care of our horses? During the next hour, we're going to investigate what good welfare means when we're working with our animals and discover what science says about making life better for our horses. To answer your questions, we're joined tonight by Dr. Kami Haleski of uh, University of Kentucky. Uh, welcome, Dr. Haleski. And thank you very much for having me tonight. So let's uh, start by um, sharing with everyone what it is that uh, interests you in this topic and your background in horse welfare and horse learning. So I've probably had an interest, a strong interest in horse behavior ever since I was a child. I was lucky enough to be raised on a small horse farm. Um, my dad and sisters and I were really into uh, training horses, raising horses. We always had about 20 horses there on the farm and uh, trained a lot of client horses, gave a lot of lessons. And I always enjoyed watching the horses, just trying to figure out how they were seeing their world. Uh, so eventually I went to Michigan State University and studied animal science, uh, eventually got my PhD with an emphasis in animal behavior and animal welfare and uh, continued to work at Michigan State for 25 years in their horse management program. Um, and then ultimately, in 2016, started working at University of Kentucky. Whenever I've had the chance to do some applied research, I've tried to do that in the area of horse behavior, horse welfare, and also horse-human interaction. Uh, I've gotten a little more interested in studying some of the racing industry issues over the last couple of years. The other thing I've been really involved with since about 2005 is the International Society for Equitation Science. So I've been very involved as a, as a council member with them. Uh, the last piece I, I wanted to mention was that I've been super involved with working equid. So I've had a chance to go to a few developing parts of the world, uh, some places in Honduras, some places in Egypt, for example, and and try to be involved with um, equids that are actively helping, you know, their human family. Mm -hmm. um, and can you tell us a little bit about your research work as well? Uh, so some of the research I've been involved in, and I should mention my main um, university appointment has always been teaching, but when I can manage to do a little bit of research, it's usually related in some way to learning theory, like perhaps comparing positive reinforcement outcomes to negative reinforcement outcomes, or trying to maybe observe what an animal's response to a vocal cue might be. Uh, again, some of this working equid uh, opportunities have led to welfare assessment types of research articles. Uh, and then a little bit of work in terms of combining ethics and science. Well, I'm excited to get to our conversation, but before we get started, I want to give everyone a quick review of the Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to begin with the questions everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question you'd like to ask live or would like clarification on a response, you can enter it in the chat window in front of you if you're listening online. Mm -hmm. We'll do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. If you're listening uh, to our archive or podcast and are interested in joining us live during our events, register to receive our announcements at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive. So with that, uh, Dr. Haraliski, let's go ahead and get started. So. I want to okay. set our set our framework. So can you explain to us the difference between animal rights and animal welfare? Okay, I'm gonna to try to use some of the language I would with my um, university students in some of the classes that they take. And I, I try to get them thinking very early on in the semester that animal welfare is, is basically trying to provide that animal with, with a good state, a good quality of life. Uh, so the majority of students that I work with are very much about animal welfare, about horse welfare. We want to do as many good things and have that animal as comfortable as possible. 
if I have some students in my class that are more to the animal rights perspective, they're actually looking uh, for that animal to essentially have many of the same moral rights as, as humans do. And a lot of times the, the little picture I will give the students is think of, think of a, a child, a dog, and a rat on a boat. And you're also on the boat. And if they all fall overboard, who do you save first? And the majority of us would save the child first and then the dog. And depending on how we feel about rats, we do or don't save the rat. Um, whereas if somebody is really, really all, all the way to an animal rights perspective, they're more likely to think of saving whichever of those three is having the most trouble swimming. So sometimes that's a, I can see the little light bulbs come on sometimes when I, when I give that picture. Yeah, that, that does make sense. So how does the, um, the framework of animal rights and welfare play into training and managing our horses? Well, I, th I think it's super important to be thinking about an animal welfare perspective when we think about properly managing our horses. And, um, you know, we, we talk a little bit about five freedoms, such as making sure a horse has enough food, enough water, access to shelter, shelter, things along that line. We're trying more and more to move to like a five domains where we're also thinking about the positive sides of emotion. And not only is the animal not having a suffering life, but are we actually providing them good things? Is it a good quality of life? Is it a life worth living? So you mentioned the five domains, and I think that plays into our next question, which is from Donna in Pennsylvania. And she wants to know, is there one key element that is most important in keeping our horses healthy and maintaining their quality of life? So is that an application of, of the five domains? And if so, is there one that's most important? Well, and I think I'm going to take a piece of the five domains, but I'm going to kind of simplify it in a way. Um, you can find some really good infographics online about the five domains. Uh, Australia is a little ahead of us on looking at this, and so a lot of the infographics come out of Australia. But, but in a more simple way, um, I have a behaviorist colleague in Canada called Lauren Frazier, and she talks about the three Fs, and she talks about that as friends, forage, and a freedom to move. So basically, do horses have an opportunity to have social contact with preferably other horses? Do they have frequent opportunities to be foraging or grazing? And do they have a decent amount of space to move around? So Sergio in Spain has a question, and that's, what are some objective measurements of welfare owners and veterinarians can use to ensure the welfare of our horses? So is there an amount of um, the amount of friends that they have or the amount of contact they have or the amount of freedom that they get um, that, that we know that this is what horses need? Um, and maybe, maybe you have another interpretation of his question, uh, too. And I probably did interpret it just a little differently and, yeah. and was looking at it, looking at I, it a little more from a broader welfare assessment perspective. Um, so what I, what I tend to think of is, all right, what are some animal based measures that we can be looking at? Like what is the body condition score of the horses at this facility? Um, in terms of ethogram, as far as what are the numbers? of different types of behaviors the horses can engage in at this facility. Uh, I might look for overall a lack of lameness. I might look for a good quality mm -hmm. of skin and hair. Um, if, if, if I'm maybe working with working equids, a lot of times I want to be able to figure out, uh, are they scared of me? If I walk up to a, a, a burrow that's been pulling a cart all day, does he stand there and let me pet him, or is he constantly moving his head and really scared of me? And then I might also look at resource-based measures, like do they have access to forage? Do they have access to water? Do they have access to shelter? So, um, you know, you can go to the literature and find some 
really, really involved welfare assessment tools, um, or you can use some of these kind of quicker measures. We have a question from our live audience, and it's from Teresa, and she wants to know if stall time is detrimental to horses mentally and or physically. So. Uh, I'm, I'm not like anti-all stalling, but certainly I think there are a lot of places and situations where stall time gets used too much in our horses management. Um, I understand some of the reasons we do it. It's a little easier to keep them clean. It's a little easier to keep them not sun faded. But, but an overabundance of time spent in a stall certainly has some negative impacts on their behavior. Uh, we have pretty good evidence from a number of surveys, thousands of horses, that you're more likely to run into a problem with stereotypic behavior like cribbing or weaving if they spend tons of time in a stall. Uh, we, we have some pretty good evidence that their bone density and the connective tissue health may not be good if they're spending lots and lots of time in the stall. Depending on the air quality in the barn, we might have some impact on respiratory health and even things like frequency of colic or frequency of ulcers. We've also seen those be higher in horses that are, are way overstalled. So you mentioned um, stereotypic behaviors. Can you explain the difference between that and a vice and how we frame those behaviors like weaving and cribbing and stall walking um, in a way? I think that's um, a little bit kinder to the horse than, than that. Um, I, I feel like that's one of those traditions or habits that we get into of a vice and this horse is bad because they weave in their stall. Um, can, can you talk about how we, we frame that in, in a more positive way? Sure, and certainly we could spend the rest of the time period just talking about stereotypic behaviors. Uh, you know, when we use this term stable vice, it's been out in the industry for a long time. We as behaviorists are trying really hard to move away from that because it does tend to imply a blame on the animal. And most of the time, if an animal has an started to engage in cribbing or weaving or stall walking, uh, most of our research would indicate they're trying to come up with a coping mechanism. And whether it's from boredom or frustration or a different reason, I don't know if we necessarily know the exact motivator that starts it, because you can have multiple horses in a barn and maybe only one of them starts to crib or maybe only one of them starts to weave. Um, one thing I try really hard to caution people against is you can't just go to a farm, see a cribbing horse, and assume that horse right now has bad welfare. It probably says they've had questionable welfare somewhere along the way. But once once they become a cribber or weaver or stall walker, um, especially cribbers, it's really, really hard to ever completely stop that behavior. So going back to Teresa's question about stall time and knowing that lots of our horses do spend time in stalls and, and sometimes it's just what we have to manage our horses, are there ways to design stalls or things that we can do in our stalls to make them uh, better for our horses? Well, there are a few things we can do. And, and one thing I should mention, um, you know, like for myself, when I kept my horses on my own property in Michigan, most of the time they were in the barn for 12 hours a day and outside for 12 hours a day. So it's not that I think all stalling is bad. Um, I know Catherine Hout, who is a professor emeritus from Cornell, she thinks that maybe as little as an hour outside time per day might be enough to stop a lot of the bad stuff related to stalls. If you are going to have them in stalls, I am hugely in favor of the in-between stall walls being like as open as possible rather than like sometimes I'll walk into a barn and it's completely solid walls between all the stalls and maybe even the front opening is quite small so you've taken away so much of the visual horizon of the horse that seems to be a stressor um, you know stalls that are really kind of dark and again the poor air quality uh, you know, some of the things we can try to do are like some of the stall toys or possibly hay bags. Um, but, in, you know, 
it's one thing if you have an injured horse and you're trying to help them deal with the recovery and they have to be in the stall. But if if it's just if it's just for owner convenience, I'm going to be a hard person to convince that we shouldn't just be getting them out more. Can having music or playing the radio on the barn? I used to uh, clean stalls for uh, a lady who played talk radio to her horses, and her horses were the best informed horses on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> they listen to talk radio all day. Is that something that the the horses seem to like? Uh, is there any research tied to that? There's there's a little research that uh, I think it was country music and classical music. The horse's behavior seemed to be slightly more relaxed. We're talking pretty small differences that we're seeing. You know, we know in our animal shelters for dogs, for example, that it can make a big difference. But I, but I think with horses, um, that may not be quite as important to their well-being. Having said that, uh, if, if my horses are in the stall a lot, I usually do turn on the radio. Uh, we have a question from Mary in our live audience, and she wants to know what is the ideal or least amount of space a horse needs to move around for their well-being? That is such a good question and very under-researched. Mm -hmm. um, a few years back, I was on the Welfare Code Group for Canada. They came up with a very nice code through the, uh, they just call it their NFAC code, and they do it for different species. And what we ended up listing was kind of my rule of thumb. I feel like a horse needs to be able to break into a canter of their own accord. That's how I decide if the pen is big enough or not. And then if you're looking at pasture management and feeding and nutrition, then that might also give you some parameters um, for how much space horses need to be together. Certainly. If it's if we're trying to figure out this from a nutrition basis, like if we're having them on pasture and we're not supplementing their feed, then we need to think about is there enough grass to provide for X number of horses. But if it's if it's strictly about how much space does a horse need to be healthy, um, you know, I'm a big fan of more space is a better thing. But again, kind of my rule of thumb is that horse should be able to break into a canter. We know they need to do some cantering for bone strength. So even though in a round pen, you might be able to get a horse to canter when you're kind of free lunging them, that doesn't mean they would ever break into a canter on their own. Mm -hmm. So we have a question from Kathy in California, and she is asking about retiring a horse that is used to being in a barn situation uh, and is now not needing to be there because they're not being shown in, in training. So is it better to retire out in a herd in a pasture or stay in the environment that the horse is familiar with? And obviously every horse is an individual, but I would say the majority of horses, you know, they might have a very long retirement life. Um, let's say we're retiring them at 18 and this horse lives to be 28. Uh, there is every reason to believe that that horse over a short amount of time would get very well adapted to being in a pasture situation, being with other horses or maybe even donkeys or mules. Um, you know, I have every reason to believe their welfare would overall be better to move them to the pasture herd environment. There might be a few bite and kick marks right at first, but over the long haul, that's probably going to be the environment where they have the better welfare. Again, every once in a while, we need a horse that they just don't adapt well if they've lived a, a fairly barn-kept life most of their life. Yeah. This question made me think of a comment that I think came from the seminars that we hosted at the mm -hmm. Retired Racehorse Project, and someone one of our experts mentioned that uh, for off-track thoroughbreds, they live in a stall and they're used to life a certain way. And then there's those of us who really like our horses out with our friends in pasture with free feeding hay. And to take those horses and just toss them out might be a little abrupt for the horses and they might not thrive in that environment and they might need to transition uh, and not just, you know, just not cold turkey out of a stall into a pasture with friends. Um, do you have any thoughts on that for a retired show horse? 
or does that seem reasonable um, to you? I mean, I think I think in a perfect world, a retired show horse or a retired racehorse does get some transition time. Um, my daughter and I adopted an off-the-track thoroughbred uh, basically a year ago, and you know he came from a full-time training center, so he would have been in a stall all the time and had track exercise, but not had any turnout. So we gave him probably two months of transition where at the boarding stable we had access to, he was in a stall for half the day. He was outside with just a couple horses for the other half of the day. And then gradually we started having him outside more so, um, having him out with a broader number of horses. And at this point he's outside 24 seven with a couple other horses. Mm -hmm. And he's happy. Um, from what I can tell, he looks like he's about as happy as a horse knows how to be. Yeah, I, I bet. Uh, our next question is from Netson in Arizona. Actually, we have two stallion-related questions um, that I'll pose together. So Netson in Arizona wants to know, what's your view on the standard practices of housing stallions in isolation? And then we have Victoria in Connecticut who wants to know if stallions can be turned out with other horses if they're well-behaved. I'll try to kind of address both of those. Um, you know, I grew up with the very common tradition that stallions would be housed alone, um, but also was always at places, either my dad's farm or the Michigan State farm, where we tried to keep stallions close to other horses. We never like kept them in a place on the farm all by themselves. They always, in the barn, they could see other horses. In their pasture or paddock, they could see other horses. And both places totally believed in tons and tons of turnout for stallions. <clears throat> um, now, interestingly, there's a group in Switzerland, part of our equitation science group, that they have been doing some, what I think is fascinating research, where the stallions that are next to each other in the barn, they're gradually taking out some of the dividing poles in, in the wall. And the horses gradually start doing some mutual grooming and, and kind of do some little play fighting back and forth. And now they've actually turned a bunch of these stallions out together in a big pasture. And um, this has been going on for probably over two years. And these stallions are doing great. Now, it's still something that I'm not totally conceptually used to. But, you know, the, the question from Connecticut um, I know there are people out there that turn stallions out, for example, like with older geldings, um, you know, and it, it, it can work. I, I'm a little afraid to say, yeah, absolutely yeah. go do it because there's still a chance for injury. And so it, it needs a, it needs people really, really comfortable watching horse behavior and making those judgments. Yeah, and we have an article coming out on thehorse.com. I, I believe it'll be up next week um, about stallion housing. That if uh, Netson and Victoria are, are listening, keep an eye out for that because it, it had some pretty interesting information about that that same research that that you're that mentioning um, that I thought was mm -hmm. really interesting um, for those of us who aren't around stallions a lot. Um, so, but our next question is from Pamela in Oregon, and she wants to know how can you tell the difference between pain behaviors and just unwanted behaviors? And I, th I mean, sometimes I feel like it's fairly obvious. You look at the horse, you watch their facial expressions, you watch their body language, and you know you might be able to tell right away this is not this horse's normal behavior. Um, I, I, I'm really concerned about whether this horse is in pain. Other times it's it's super tricky and I feel like some of the most clever detective work we ever have to do as horse people is figuring stuff like this out. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell, do they not, do they think that saddle doesn't fit perfectly? And, you know, we can spend a lot of time and money trying to get the saddle to fit perfectly. Um, I think it depends a lot on, on how much time we're going to be riding and so forth. If, if I'm not quite sure, if a horse is, well, I'll use my daughter's horse as an example. Um, he's been really, really good to transition from track life to regular hunter under saddle life, dressage horse life. But here real recently, he started kind of kicking out when she would ask for, I forget which lead, let's say the right lead of the canter. And, and so I would talk to her. I said, I, I really think he might possibly be a little bit sore. 
And so we gave him a little time off and we just watched and watched and watched and we just went to some groundwork for a while. Um, tried to rule out all the normal things like saddle pain or dental pain. Um, and then ultimately she just kind of had to canter him through it a couple times. And, you know, the other thing I will occasionally do if I'm working closely with my vet is to say, hey, how would you feel about us giving this horse a little bit of pain relief and see how the, his behavior is at that point? So sometimes that can help you rule things out. If if you've had a horse, let's say, doing a little cow kick when you ask for the canter and you give them some pain relief and now they don't do it, that that's a, a starting point on your on your detective path. So again, that's another one of those where um, I know Sue McDonald does some work about is it physical, is it psychological, or is it a combination? Yeah. And and I wonder, can pain behaviors, maybe you correct for the, the issue, and can that be a habituated behavior in the horse? Like if you have a horse that uh, is pins its ears when you saddle it, even if you've made sure the saddle fits and the horse came with that behavior. Is it possible that the horse will just keep doing that? Or should we expect those to those behaviors to soften over time? I, I think the word you'd use is extinguish, but I'm not positive. <laughs> well, yeah, it, I mean, it, it might extinguish over time just by ignoring it. But let's say we've got a cinchy horse that maybe they had an ulcer at one point. And so they kind of learned to protect themselves as, as we're pulling the girth tighter and they got used to pinning their ears. Um, even after we treat the ulcer, even after the ulcer's done, they may have gotten so much anticipating that they're going to feel pain when the girth is tightened that they just automatically turn and pin their ears or whatever. So then you may have to go through some fairly rigorous counter conditioning, you know, potentially having somebody give the horse a treat every time they don't make a pin the ears kind of expression. But you want to make sure that the pain is gone before you start trying to retrain things. Okay. So you just mentioned counter conditioning and, and described um, a little bit how that's done. But I think that's something that we could make really clear for the audience. So can you uh, explain what counter conditioning is? So if I use a different example, um, again, my poor daughter's going to get used a bunch here tonight. Uh, she had one of our older horses that she wanted to take to a parade and carry a flag. And uh, as we took the flag over to the horse to see how he was going to respond, it was obvious he was terrified of the flag. So we started embarking on some counter conditioning where basically um, I would walk to the horse until his ears were really up, his eyes were very forward and focused. I could tell he was like right on the threshold of what he could tolerate. And that was not when I gave him a reward. He got his reward when he relaxed and kind of dropped his head and his ears looked relaxed and his eyes got relaxed. Then he got a little treat. And then we'd kind of walk around, I'd go a little bit closer again, you know, just to the threshold of where he was showing a, a fearful face. And then once he relaxed, he got some treats. And pretty soon she could ride him while I was carrying the flag next to her. And in less than an hour, now partly this horse loves food, so that was very helpful. But within an hour, we had him counter conditioned to tolerate what used to be a really fearful stimulus. So I use this on my very sensitive off-track thoroughbred mare who has not been as easy to, to transition as I think yours has been. And so yeah. um, with uh, they aren't all. Yeah. So um, it's opening. There's a garage door at the barn that I has to open mm -hmm. and close. And so she was really that was very upsetting to her and just the counter conditioning with that. And now it's no problem all, at all. You can open and close that door. And she she looks at it. She's still like, oh, but yeah, um, but it was really super helpful. And I was glad that I had that in my toolbox because I don't know that I would right. have thought about using treats in that way, which I guess leads us to our next question from Teresa. And she wants she's in California and she wants to know what recommendations you have in the use of treats for positive reinforcement. Because not everyone so wants to give their horses treats, but what, what are your thoughts on treats? 
well, I'm going to back up for just a second. And so when we were just talking about treats as counter conditioning, that's a little different than using them as positive reinforcement, okay. but it's really close. Uh, let's say I have a horse that is difficult to catch. And um, so every time I go out to the pasture and I get reasonably close to that horse, I might go ahead and hold a treat on my hand. Now, at first, it's a little bit of bribery for them to come up and get the treat. What I really prefer to do, let's say I have a horse that knows how to be caught, but they've gotten a little bit soured about it for some reason. Once I get my neck, my sorry, my hand around the horse's neck, that's when I give them the treat. And I've found this super, super effective over the years of horses that somewhere along the way, somebody got them a little bit soured about being caught. And I have found positive reinforcement of treats to be a really positive, a really helpful way to get through that. So in general, positive reinforcement is something the horse is going to like, such as a treat, but it could also be scratching their withers. And um, I think in the horse industry, we don't even come close to using positive reinforcement and treats enough. I have found it to be such a time saver and so helpful getting horses over, especially fearful things. Um, you know, helping my horses learn to be clipped in a faster way, helping them learn to go in the wash rack in a faster way. And uh, I, I truly hope we can get the horse industry a little more modern thinking and be more okay with treats. So I have an example um, that I'd like to see what, what your thoughts are on using positive reinforcement for this behavior. So at my barn, there's an older horse. He's in his 20s, um, he's upper level horse that competed all over the place. And so when you go to take his halter off to turn him out, he bolts mm -hmm. and it's actually a dangerous uh -huh. bolt for these you know 17 three hands is there a mm -hmm. way that you could use positive reinforcement in that situation to uh, change that behavior well and and the time that i use it in a more preventative way to start with is um basically like with this off the track horse that we recently adopted as we would walk out in the pasture and turn him back towards the gate normal safe way he would get a little treat. I wanted him to think about standing there and hanging out with me, and that was more fun than running off to his horse, uh, his friends. And then I would undo the halter and give him another treat. Um, now, because he had never gotten into the habit of bolting off, this was a super fast thing to train. Mm -hmm. If they've already gotten the habit of bolting off, your work is a lot harder. And I would suggest that the person with this big strong horse probably needs let's say a very small pasture that has no other horses in it and and try to work on these things like all right if you stay by by me right here you're going to get a treat and uh, if the horse is fairly food motivated it should it should be fixable we have a question from Mary in our live audience and she wants to know if pawing is a normal behavior in a yearling and will it go away with time or should she be doing something to manage it while he's young? She says she tries to ignore it uh, and he's turned out during the day and has 24 access to hay, toys and buddies. Pawing is kind of a complicated one because there's a lot of things horses need to do pawing about that are totally natural. So like sometimes people want to call pawing a stereotypical behavior, and I don't like to call it that because you can see a foal pawing to get up nice fresh shoots of grass. And so there definitely are some natural reasons that a horse will paw. I'm guessing this is more like if she has the horse maybe tied in the barn, wanting to brush and so forth, and the animal is kind of pawing maybe in anticipation or something along that line. Um, you know, you could you can sometimes just do total ignore and probably the worst thing to do is yell at the horse like from the other side of the barn because it's it's a little bit like the dog you yell at when they're barking. Uh negative attention can be preferred to no attention. So a lot of these horses that get yelled at for pawing, if anything, paw more. Um and how many times have you been in a no. barn and heard someone yelling? 
all the time. I've, I've done yeah. it. I mean, we've all done it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we've all done it. Um, you know, if I'm not terribly worried that the horse is going to damage their trim job or their shoe job, I really just don't worry about it. And especially in a youngster, I'm very inclined to just leave it alone. Um, there are little like paw bracelets you can put on horses where basically it's just enough to kind of agitate the horse and be a little uncomfortable when they paw. I have no idea how effective they are. I've never tried using them. Um, I, I, most of the horses I've ever dealt with that pawed very much, it took a while, but that would be one of those examples of it extinguished itself after it was ignored for long enough. Is is that a behavior that you could use positive reinforcement to encourage the horse to stand quietly with all four feet on the ground? In theory, yes. Um, having tried to fix it with nothing but positive reinforcement, I have found it very challenging. Like if horses are really, really ingrained at pawing when they're tied in the barn, you know, the idea is, all right, if you stand still for 15 seconds, I'll give you a treat. If you stand still for 30 seconds, I'll give you a treat. If you stand still for a minute, I'll give you a treat. Um, it, with a horse that hasn't been pawing very long, I think you can make some progress at that. Some of them, if they're really established paws, it's it's more challenging. Now, the ones that that paw in the barn close to feeding time, like let's say in the morning, right before everybody gets grain. Um, unfortunately, we we self reinforce that because the horse is standing there pawing, anticipating their grain, and then we give them grain. Mm -hmm. And so, in some regards, some of these horses accidentally get trained to paw. Yeah. And can horses stack behaviors like if they're pawing and then you wait to feed them until they stop pawing. And so you're trying to because I this is a dilemma that I like I, I and maybe I'm overthinking it. But if they stop pawing, then I feed them. I'm convinced that mine just go, well, I paw and then I don't paw and then she feeds me like it's a pattern. <laughs> is that do we do they stack behaviors like that or is that just my imagination? I mean, the the horse's advanced part of their brain is pretty small. So, I mean, they're really cool at certain things like like emotional sensitivity. But as far as like potentially thinking, oh, all right, paw, don't paw, paw, don't paw, now I get my grain. Uh, that would be really unlikely that the horse is, is thinking that all through. So our next question ties into the positive reinforcement treats question, and it's from Esther in Ireland, and she wants to know what are your feelings on positive reinforcement versus negative reinforcement? So can you define those for us a little bit? We've talked about positive reinforcement, but can you define negative for us and, and share how you would use those? Right. So again, sometimes, unfortunately, these have been used incorrectly in the industry. And so even though tons of the training we do with horses is negative reinforcement based, there's still a certain set of people that think of it as a bad thing. Generally speaking, this is kind of our pressure release training. So for example, if I'm halter training a foal, I'm going to pull kind of gently on their halter and lead rope. And as soon as they step forward, I immediately release that pressure. Or if I have a horse that, a young horse, and I've just gotten on them and I want them to walk forward, I'm going to squeeze my legs. The second they step forward, I release that pressure. So that's our negative reinforcement. We are removing something. Um, now we're going to talk eventually a little bit about punishment in that when you're, when you use a punishment, you're trying to decrease the frequency of a behavior. Either type of reinforcement, you're trying to increase the frequency of a behavior. Um, so I am actually, I have a good friend in Florida um, that, that puts on a behavior forum each year. And she talks about making sure her horses are bilingual. She wants them to be able to understand how to respond to positive reinforcement paradigms, but she also wants them to understand negative reinforcement. And she recognizes that the majority of them will end up getting sold to places that rely more heavily on negative reinforcement. Um, so I'm actually very okay with 
both when they are done well and done fairly and done with good timing. So let's go ahead and touch on punishment and how punishment is different than negative reinforcement. Um, so for example, let's say I have a yearling colt that keeps wanting to bite me, wanting to bite me, wanting to bite me. Um, and again, I have some of my colleagues that think you should never, ever use punishment. I grew up in a very traditional horse background. If I have a young colt trying to nip me, I might, let's say, carry a dressage crop and pop him on the chest whenever he tries to bite me. Um, I don't like the idea of trying to pop them on the side of the face because a lot of young colts think that is just the world's best game. And, uh, but the punishment is using the pop with the crop to, if your timing is good, get them to decrease the biting. And so how, let's, I really want to um, really distinguish negative reinforcement from punishment. So I'm here, so punishment is correcting a behavior and negative reinforcement is applying a pressure and a release situation. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Right. And one thing I'm not going into, because I think it's going to take us too far down a rabbit hole, is trying to explain the difference between positive punishment and negative punishment. So I'm just saying in general, when when a punishment is used, you're trying to decrease the frequency of a behavior. We could even use hot wire fence as an example. Um, that animal touches the hot wire. It gives them a shock and you decrease very quickly the tendency of the horse to approach the fence. Um, again, negative reinforcement is the vast majority of what we do with so much of our training. If I'm trying to get a horse that already knows how to lead properly, I'm trying to get him onto a horse trailer, I'm going to probably be pulling and applying some pressure to the halter, which puts some different pressures on the head. And again, as soon as that horse steps forward, I release that pressure. Um, our next question is from Marianne in Florida, and she wants to know how do you educate professional horse industry and organizations and the organizations that regulate them uh, to the training and science uh, related to welfare? So how do how do we spread the message of equitation science and research to organizations that oversee? I think I think she's mostly referring to show organizations or breed organizations. Well, and I I wonder if this is a Marianne in Florida that I've spoken with recently because we had a very similar conversation to this. Um, and and this is a challenge that I have wondered about for a very long time. Um, you know, how do we better get the message out about those things? You know, we've been doing the equitation science conference and research since sometime before 2005. And within small pockets of populations, we've made a big difference. But then there's vast quantities of people in, in really high levels of showing or racing or polo or whatever that have never even heard of equitation science or never even heard of applying learning theory. Um, now, one of the ways we do it is through forums like this. You know, and my husband asked me a little bit ago, he's like, and why exactly are you doing this tonight? And I said, well, it's because I believe in it and I'm passionate about it. And, you know, if if two more people understand some of these concepts than they did before the start of tonight, then then it was totally worth it. Uh, we have a question from Alexandra in Texas, and she wants to know your thoughts on people who have objections to clicker training uh, that say that horses should want to do something instead of being bribed to do it with a treat. Can you touch a little bit on what clicker training is and then how that might be applied with our horses? So the clicker training, really the, the clicker serves as a bridge. We can... Um, there's some debate on this, but, but you can use something as simple as saying good boy or good girl. And so like, I'm trying to think of a really good example. 
let's say that I'm working with a dog and like right now I'm trying to teach my puppy to sit and lay down. Um, I can first teach him that every time I click, he gets a treat. And so for a few days, all we do is click, get a treat, click, get a treat, click, get a treat. Eventually, they start to realize, oh, click means yes. And somewhere in the next few moments, I'm going to get a treat. So there are a lot of different ways to apply this. Um, you can go online and look at Shauna Karash's work, and she does amazing work with clicker training. And her training was with marine mammals originally. Um, I Whether I use clicker training per se or I use my own bridge of good boy, good girl, it, it's not unlike what I was saying before with the positive reinforcement. We do not use treat-based training as much as we should in the horse industry. I firmly believe that. Um, I do not consider it to be bribing. Uh, a few years back, one of the studies we did was getting horses who had never crossed a tarp before taught to cross a tarp. And we compared horses where we did just negative reinforcement, the pressure and release, and we compared them to horses that we also gave them a treat every time they stepped forward. And um, there were people, you know, as, as that study turned out, both groups took about the same amount of time to cross the tarp. But what was really cool is a year and a half later, we retested them. And all the horses that had originally learned the task of treats were much faster at doing it the year and a half later. And we didn't use any treats the second time around. Huh. So it was, and, and I know there are people out there that do almost nothing but positive reinforcement that say basically there's different pathways in the brain that um, are firing when you're using a lot of positive reinforcement. And so your horse may retain things that they learn, let's say through clicker training uh, for longer or more easily. Okay. And they, they may have more, they may actually kind of be more excited about doing the work. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that everybody's gonna need to run out and go get a clicker. But I, but I do think there are a lot of ways to incorporate more positive reinforcement training than what we currently do. So I had done a puppy class that used a clicker with my healer uh, probably seven years ago. And you know, we did a lot of clicking to sit and to lie down and, you know, all the, the basic puppy behaviors that you want them to do. And then it just kind of, I don't know, it was something else, another thing to have to do. So I put away the clicker and then I, uh, doing some reading on uh, horses with the clickers. I was like, oh, this might be fun. So I got the clicker back out and I started working with one of my horses with a clicker and my dog, who's kind of usually pretty aloof. Um, I looked over, you know, I'm working with my horse and then I look over and my dog is pulling out everything that he, every trick in his, in his bag. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you have the clicker out, something's going on here. And it, it cracked me up. And then I found with that mare when I, came back to the clicker again she knew she was like oh this is the this is what we're doing right now uh, right. the clicker's out so anyway I just thought it was a fun little anecdote but my dog he was like sitting down laying down crawl like I'm like what he's like what is the thing you want <laughs> so um anyway it's 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 interesting and it's so different from how most of us work with our horses uh, it's fun to play with yeah. I would definitely encourage people to try it out well, especially like if you have a horse that maybe can't be ridden for a while, but they can have groundwork, mm -hmm. it's it's something nice to kind of pass the time. Um, we have a question from Judy in Queensland, Australia, and she wants to know, how can you gain trust in an anxious horse? Um, and this is one that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Some of my very favorite horses, I I refer to them as fragile-minded horses. Um, you know, my all-time favorite horse ever was a very, very anxious, tense, emotionally sensitive horse. Uh, one thing I loved about that is it forced me to kind of almost be in a Zen mentality whenever I worked with her. Um, and it, it, it took a fair bit of time to gain trust in that anxious horse. Uh, there was a lot of time just spent you know, watching the horse eat grass and just being near that horse 
and, you know, hand feeding the horse, um, tons and tons of petting and wither scratching, almost, almost never a harsh word or anything that would kind of take some of that trust away again. Um, and, and then the thing I've found about those type of horses for the most part is once you can establish that trust, man, sometimes they're the horses that would walk through a wall of fire for you. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely time consuming, but I almost never think it's impossible. We have a question from Gerilyn in Washington. And Gerilyn points out that her dynamics are often used in training. We talk a lot about uh, dominance and the alpha horse and um, and the more passive horse. So she also says that her her dynamics can be dangerous among the horses together. They're kicking each other. They're biting each other. She wants to know if horses can be confused if humans are working in that same uh, hierarchy uh, paradigm. Okay. This is all right. Now that I hear more of the question, I misunderstood it a little bit when I first looked at it. I thought we were just talking about generally when you have horses in a big group, yes, you might have some kicking and biting that goes on. Um, I do think there's a danger in, you know, like certain types of training over the last few decades have talked a lot about either being the leader, showing them who's boss, being the alpha. And I think there is some danger in that. And uh, one of one of our trustees to equitation science, Jan Ladvig out of Denmark, put together a really nice um, position statement. And it's on the equitation science website. And it talks a lot about why it might be risky to think that the horse automatically wants to be looking at us as a leader or the alpha. Um, and, and the more they study horses in the wild and in feral situations, you know, they're even seeing that, you know, this idea that there's a top, a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, that's not quite how it is. You know, there might be one horse that's sort of more dominant when it comes to getting food. There might be a different horse when it comes to gaining access to a shelter. And so certainly we have to um, operate around horses in a way that keeps us safe. And the horse needs consistency in the um, types of cues we give them. But but I I think it can be problematic to say we must show them who's boss. We have a question from Mark in Ontario, Canada. And Mark wants to know about uh, harsh bits, bits versus bitless bridles, spurs, crops, martingales of any kind. Um, what does your horse prefer? Do we know? Uh, well, I'll, I'll just take bit versus bitless bridle. Um, and I, I'm going to take the harsh piece off. I'm just going to go with a bit versus a bitless bridle. And so I, I decided I was going to try some of these on several of my horses and several of our university horses. And again, horses are individuals and we don't always know what background their training involved. Um, you know, I had, like out of each set of four horses, I had one horse in each group of four that did not like the bitless bridle at all. You know, it puts pressures on different parts of the face. And to those two particular horses, they 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 did not cope well at all. Um, whereas a couple of them actually seemed to be a little better. They weren't showing some of their head tossing behaviors, let's say. And then a couple of them, it just seemed like, eh. It, it didn't really matter between a bitted bridle or a bitless. You know, a little bit of a political piece on that in terms of like some of the show committees and so forth. I'm not positive why we're resisting the idea of having classes for bitless bridles. Um, you know, if we're talking, let's say, about a, a dressage show, I, I, I don't myself understand why we couldn't have bitted horses and bitless horses competing in the same classes. I know I've talked to a couple other people that they're like, all right, fine with the bitless, but let's have separate classes for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of some of the other items mentioned, you know, there's a lot of this 
and you and I spoke about this earlier, it has so much to do with how the person that's using them is applying them and do they understand why they're using them? Do they use the absolute most subtle cue that's possible? Um, and, and do they have a good enough understanding of learning theory? You know, I, as I look through Facebook pages, there's so many people, it seems like that if they're having trouble setting the horse's head, let's say, they just want to keep going to a harsher bit and a harsher bit and a harsher bit, which is 99% of the time not the answer. Um, and in terms of, you know, like using a bigger spur and a bigger spur, we shouldn't have to use something that has the potential to draw blood. Um, you know, so it, it, I've had times where I thought a martingale was was helpful in a certain situation. I've had times where I thought a crop was helpful in a certain situation. We have a question from Steph in our live audience, and she wants to know, how do you tell the difference between learned helplessness and calm acceptance in your horse? <laughs> That's like a trick question. <laughs> um, do you want to explain <laughs> what learned helplessness is? Because I think this is a really important piece for horse people to understand. So if we're really truly talking about learned helplessness, and I should mention, we probably don't know 100% if horses have learned helplessness, although I highly, highly suspect they do. But some of the studies in the 60s that were done with cats and dogs would, for example, have them in these cages and some of the animals would get foot shocks. Um, not real strong, but significant. And if they were in a situation where a light came on before the foot shock, and then they could jump to the other side of the cage. They were not particularly bothered by this because they had some control over the situation. But the animals that got no warning before the foot shock and eventually just learned they were gonna get foot shock no matter what they did, they eventually just kind of laid there and took it. And they, they stopped trying to escape. Um, and so this, this worries me a lot. Sometimes when I walk through certain barns, I'll see a bunch of the horses just looking really, really dejected, you know, kind of head down. And yes, horses doze. So you have to be careful that you're not just looking at a dozing horse. But um, I do think that sometimes you see certain horses maybe working with certain trainers that are showing something akin to learned helplessness. Um, most of the behaviorists that are willing to talk about it say it's something like depression. And so if this horse looks a lot like a depressed person, you might be dealing with something like learned helplessness. So as far as the calm acceptance, yes, you want a horse to calmly accept, I don't know, having the saddle put on. But you'd like to see that their eyes are still bright and alert, that their ears are still working. Um, what I, what I get really, really a little bit concerned about, concerned is not the right word. Like, let's say I'm giving a beginner student a riding lesson on a super quiet horse. That horse is kind of semi-turned off during the riding lesson, but I want to know as soon as I let that horse back out in pasture, they act totally like a normal horse with normal expressions. And every now and then I've seen horses that they're turned off during their riding session, but then they're still turned off when they go back to the stall or back to their paddock. That's when I get worried. So I save the, the big question for last, and, and this is another one of those rabbit hole kind of questions. Uh, Nakia sent in a question during registration and says, thinking only of the welfare of the animal, should we ride them at all? Uh, which, is another intriguing question. It's oftentimes one that I give my students on their final exam, <laughs> just to make them think of it from an ethical framework standpoint. Um, I certainly have no problem with us riding horses. I think when we ride the horse, when we utilize the horse in whatever manner, it could be using groundwork to help in a therapy session, any of those things where the horse is in some way helping humans, 
I think we have that much bigger of a responsibility to make sure the welfare of the horse is as good as possible. Um, so I, I, that's, I, I don't think we necessarily have time to do a half hour discussion on it, but my personal feeling is I am a-okay with riding horses as long as we do it as well as we possibly can. Well, I think we're, we'll end on that one since we're out of time. I, I want to thank you, Dr. Hilleski, for joining us tonight and having this conversation. I think it was really interesting, and hopefully the audience found it informative. Um, so thank you for joining us, and thank your husband for sharing you with us tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, for everyone who's listening live, please join us next month. We're going to be talking about Horse Health Heart uh, for February. Until then, from all of us at the horse, have a great night.